You know, it's not, not fair that First Peter, the name of the book is the guy who wrote it. I guess First, Second, and Third John are that way. But when I was a new believer, I was at a Bible study, and I remember asking who wrote First Peter because, and they all looked at me like I was crazy, but it's like Timothy and Titus and all those aren't the guys who wrote it. So. <clears throat> this one could have been called Asia Minorians or something uh, since he was writing to those believers, but that probably just doesn't sound as good. But First Peter 3, verses 8 to 12 is where we'll be this evening. And why don't I read that and then open up with a word of prayer. 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." Father, we thank you for the passage that we have in front of us tonight and the opportunity to look into your word and to learn and grow. Please give us a good study as we uh, seek to build one another up in love, that we would honor you with our time here, and that we would be more like Jesus because of the time that we spend in your revelation. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it is possible to sum up the goal of Christian community. Our passage tonight shows us that. <clears throat> uh, you notice that it starts out, at least in the New American Standard, with the phrase, to sum up. <laughs> to sum up. And uh, we've been talking about, if you look back over the last few verses in chapter 2, we've been looking at submitting ourselves to every human institution, the government, it's been talking to servants being submissive to their masters. It's talked about wives being submissive to their husbands. It's talking about husbands living with their wives in an understanding way. And now he's saying, to sum up. So here we go, the big summary statement. Um, and he says, all of you, after that, to sum up, each one of you, this is for you, the entire Christian community. And what we see in these words uh, are the relationship that the Christian community is to have with itself. So obviously there are implications here for how the Christian community interacts with the world. But because of the words that are found here, like brotherly, um, harmonious, these are words that exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have the brotherly or sisterly type relationship with the world, right? Um, so this is the community, how they relate to one another. But there certainly are implications for how we live generally through this, not just when we interact with one another. And so let's go through these. Um, I'd be interested to know what other translations you had. Some of these words could be translated a variety of ways. Like, for instance, the first one here, the NASB says harmonious. Uh, could be single-minded. Are there any other words for that first one in the list that you guys have in front of you? Okay. Okay. Good, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, these, um, those are all good, good words. The 
word literally means one mind. It's just a compound word in the Greek, one mind. Be one mind with each other, okay? It's our attitude and posture toward each other as we address one another and deal spiritually with one another. We are to be of one mind, a total unity of mind. So I guess I'll put little definitions under each one. That's what I was intending to do, huh? I guess I'll do that. Total unity of mind, and you could even say, and thinking. Total unity of mind and thinking. But I have questions on each one of these, too, where I want you all to answer as we think through the application of this. As we consider harmonious, single-mindedness, does this mean uniformity in any sense? And if not, can someone explain the difference between unity and uniformity? Because when you hear, okay, single-mindedness, that means that we are all going to believe the exact same things and do the exact same things because we're single-minded, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, so we're all still different, right? Okay, good. Good, yeah, the mission of the church. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. Then we're going to be getting into that in 1 Corinthians. When we start chapter 12, he starts off with the phrase, now concerning spiritual gifts, and that's where we have that extensive passage about we're not all feet, we're not all noses, we're not all ears. I can't remember the exact parts that he uses. But yes, there's a, there's a diversity within the single-mindedness, which is one of the beautiful things of the church, that we have absolutely one mission and purpose, the Great Commission, right? and to love God and love our neighbor. Um, yet there's great diversity. Melissa? Ways that we don't even know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. So remember that, because there are a lot of uh, organizations that will conflate the two and pretend that they have unity, when really they just have uniformity, when everybody's just demanded to do the same things, and there's no real freedom there. And actually, the result is there's no unity there because everyone um, is resenting the rules to a certain extent or whatever, and, and there's no actual unity. They're just all told what to do to fake unity. Joseph, did you have a thought there? Yeah, well, like when I think of Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep, wearing a uniform or something. Yeah, exactly. That's The words are connected semantically. But yeah, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of application for that, but we'll just leave it there for the moment. I have another question about that, though, about harmony. How could we describe the opposite of harmonious? So now that we've started to define the difference between harmony or unity against uniformity, what would be the opposite of harmonious in the church? So you could say forced unity would be one opposite, but what are some ways perhaps the people that Peter was writing to could go astray from this? What would that look like in the church? What are some examples of that? Okay. Good. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Inconsistent love? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this Sunday um, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be looking at where he gets into the Lord's Supper, and they're divisive over this. He says, I hear that divisions exist among you, and then he uses the word factions too, and that's the opposite of harmony, right? The words literally mean to tear, and so to be torn apart, that's the opposite of harmony. Yes. Yep, that's it. That's it. Okay, the second word that we have, so we've got harmonious. The next word is sympathetic, or it could be rendered understanding. Any other words in your translations for the second word in the list? Compassionate. Good. I put that down there. (laughs) Maybe I got those switched around. Yeah, but uh, sympathetic is what's in the New American Standard, to be sympathetic, which means to unite in the emotion of another, uniting in the emotion of another. And this almost always is presented um, someone who's struggling, someone who's dealing with a uh, sadness, okay? So, of course, we have the idea of rejoice with those who rejoice, but this is focused more, this word's focused more on the weep with those who weep aspect of it. Um, And the ability to be sympathetic in the church comes from, of course, love, gospel love, but it also comes from our shared experience in a fallen world too. The reason why we can be sympathetic toward one another is not just because we have the image of God, but we do, and not just because we're saved, which we are, but also because we're living in a fallen world and we have that shared experience of living in a place where things are wrong and things are broken and sadness exists and hurt and sorrow and everything else is all around us. And is there, um, I don't know how to ask the question without giving away too much of the answer. Can you think of a biblical reason how we know that our shared experience in a fallen world is key to the ability to be sympathetic? See, I feel like I didn't give you enough information, but if I give you any more, then I'll give it away. No, but that's okay. Go ahead, share. What's 2 Corinthians 1. Oh, that's a great, is that chapter 1? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Yeah, Second Corinthians 1 is a great place to turn. I was thinking of Hebrews 4. Remember what it says about our great high priest in Hebrews 4? Yes, because he was, yeah, and he was tempted in all ways as we are. So, as the Son of God was manifest among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and is now our great high priest, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was, in, he was tempted in every way that we are except without sin. So, um, you know, his living that life shows us that he's able to sympathize with us because he lived the same experience as us in the flesh. Can you share a time when perhaps you've been the recipient of biblical sympathy? Uh, are there any helpful stories to share of sympathy in the church when you've benefited and been built up through someone else's biblical sympathy? And I know you all have, but 
when you're on the spot, you're trying to think of a good story. I get it. Hmm. Go ahead. Wow, and God used that obviously in a major way in your life. For sure, yeah. When we lose a hand <laughs> or a foot, yeah, absolutely, we all feel it. So. Okay, good. Third one, brotherly. Okay, to be brotherly. Don't imagine your translations have anything too far off from that. Um, it's the word for brotherly, there aren't very many ways to translate that. It's really treating one another as siblings because that's what we are in the Lord, right? We're God's family. And so we do treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our relationship with one another. How do you love a sibling in a way different than you just love your neighbor, generally speaking? Okay, there's an unconditional aspect to it. Loyalty, good, and priority. Uh, Galatians 6.10, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. There's a priority there. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, The mature love. uh, Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But there's a thread that carries through, right, of loyalty or something, maybe. Uh, Yeah. There you go. Okay, okay. Way to tie it back. <laughs> that kind of works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can't beat up on him. I'm supposed to beat up on him. Uh, so, okay, yeah. There is something about a, a brotherly love that is different because we do know each other deeper. We should know each other deeper in a lot of ways. We're able to know what makes each other tick and uh, how to approach one another, that sort of thing. Um, brotherly or sisterly love, yeah, key. Kind-hearted is the fourth one. You guys got anything different than kind-hearted? Oh, tender. Good. Oh, King James? Pitiful. Be pitiful to one another. That's great. (laughs) An updated translation helps uh, on that word, for sure. Yep. That could be taken the wrong way. But yeah, basically, our motives are to be good. What does it mean to be kind-hearted? It means to have good motives toward one another. Uh, that we are to seek good for each other. This is, of course, our emotional center, our volitional center. So if we are going to, at heart, be kind, as we think about our volition or our will, that means our will toward one another is good. We have good will toward one another. So now what's, as we think about that definition of it, what's the difference between kind-hearted, as it's translated in the NASB, kind-hearted and nice? What's the difference between being kind-hearted and being nice? Okay. I'll remember that next time you're nice to me, Stacy. <laughs> okay, good. Yes, right. Yeah. 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 Civil and polite. Those are good words that are very, it can just present an artificial attitude and not a genuine attitude for sure. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Melise? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, you can do something nice for somebody and the whole time be thinking, this scumbag, I shouldn't be doing this, right? So, yeah, so what are you doing, right? You're just faking it. Um, or you could have goodwill toward one another and have that be revealed through actions. And the Lord sees the heart, right? So it does matter. It's not just the outward action. It's our motive behind it. What examples from the life of Christ do we have of kind-heartedness? If you think back through the Gospels, what are some examples of when Christ showed us His kind-heartedness? Good, yeah. He fed hungry people, right? Um, Yeah. Of course, it was a miracle that demonstrated His deity, um, demonstrated His sovereignty, but He was also having compassion on the people, being kind-hearted. Yeah. Yes. He was with the outcasts and with those that society had rejected. For sure. Logan. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Way to pull out a deep cut. That's good. No pun intended. <laughs> I, uh,. One passage that I always think of when it comes to Jesus' compassion um, was in, is in Matthew 9, at the end of Matthew 9, where Jesus, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And that's when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He looked at the people and it says he felt compassion for them. God of wonders that we just sang about who needs nothing, created all things, is self-existent, felt compassion on little worms like us. Isn't that something? There you go. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like you could just go all day listing examples from the life of Christ. Um, when he says he's gentle and lowly at heart, we could also say, yeah, he's, he's kind-hearted. And that came through and everything he did. And then finally, humble. Now, NASB says humble in spirit. I don't know why they added in spirit on there. I thought that was kind of weird because it's just the word for humble. Um, yours might say humble-minded or could just say humble. Uh, Thayer's Greek dictionary says, I like the way he defined it, a deep sense of one's littleness. A deep sense of one's littleness. That's pretty good. Yeah. 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 Yes. Say that again. Loving kindness in Hebrew. Yeah. Yep. Good. So, yeah, it's, um, we could say estimating self correctly. Right? If we, are, if we have a correct estima- estimation of ourselves, then we're going to have a hum- humble view of ourselves, right? Um, you can't have a correct view of yourself and think you're awesome. You just can't. 
because there is but one truly awesome who we worship. What happens in the church? Because remember, Peter's writing to churches and communities of Christians. What happens in churches when we reject humility of thinking, humility of spirit, humility of mind? What happens in the church? Okay, good, dissension. Dissension. It's a good biblical word, dissension. Not fun to live through, but good biblical word, dissension. Yeah, kind of going back to what we said earlier, right? Uh, the opposite of harmonious. It's almost like to have harmony, we all have to be humble, right? <laughs> uh, you start losing that and factions and divisions and teams and everything else rise up. So, yeah, churches can be torn apart over humility going away and pride rising up. And you have competitions of egos. A church can't live that way. And these qualities uh, that are listed up here, these five things, they only exist where there's a deep sense of loving commitment, right? If there's not a, a committed love to the body, you can't have those things. Uh, Peter's presupposing a committed love for the body in issuing these attitudes, these markers of a Christian community. Um, I liked... Job's commentary, where she wrote, these are qualities that presume a high commitment to the stability and well-being of the believing community. Modern Western concepts of individualism tend to trump commitment to community. Where commitment is found, it is often evaluated in terms of individual needs. An individual whose needs are no longer met by a community terminates the commitment and seeks a new, more obliging group. Such thinking runs counter to the qualities of chapter 3, verse 8. So this is a very selfless type of outlook, isn't it? If you're going to prioritize harmony, sympathy, brotherly love, kind-heartedness, and humility, this is a agape love type of posture toward the body of Christ, a sacrificial love, isn't it? Thoughts on verse 8, those five qualities? you were ever to look for a way to sum up what a church should be like, remember 1 Peter 3.8. There you go. To sum up what he says. There it is. Okay, now let's consider verses 9 through 12 for the rest of our time. I think there's a shift between verses 8 and 9, even though there's not a sentence break. It certainly seems that he changes from emphasizing the church to now emphasizing how the church interacts with the world. So in the the qualities there where he's saying to be harmonious and to have brotherly love, that's very obviously reference to one another in the community. But I do think in 9 to 12, there's a focus on dealing with not just those in the world, but those in the world who are persecuting you, because remember, these Christians are being persecuted. And so how are these Christians supposed to respond to the world that very obviously hates them? And we see in these verses that the Christian life is to pursue good even in the midst of that. So there's a relationship with the world in view here, but it, it also has implications for the body. So in the first verse, it's focused on the body with implications for the world, and then now we see relationship with the world with implications, I think, for the body. But it says in verse 9 that we are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, 
but to give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So in the way, in our speech, we are to pursue good and to pursue righteousness, not returning evil for evil. Meaning that when someone does something wicked to us, it is not a Christian value to seek revenge. When someone does something evil to us, it is not godly to respond with evil, to get fair or whatever, however we want to justify that to ourselves. And even our speech should not be sinful, even when we're spoken against, not insult for insult. So not just evil for evil, but even our words, insult for insult. So when Christians are mocked, you are not to. Very good. Okay, good. Stacy's tracking. When you're mocked, you are not to mock back. You are to take it without any arrogance or any pride bubbling up or any sinning against them. And as I was thinking about this, it's, you know, it's common grace that there are lots of people out there, Christian or not, who are, who are not able to, or who are able to restrain themselves from mouthing off, okay? Uh, I was not one of them before I was a Christian. I was, whoop, 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 whoop. I had a quick mouth, okay? Uh, but there were lots of people in my life who had just, a, it seemed like a natural restraint with their mouth, and that's just God's common but it takes something supernatural in a person's life to not respond to somebody who's mouthed off to you without mouthing back. I think that's everybody's natural instinct. If someone you know, just fires something off at you, I think by instinct you're ready, just, well, I'm going to fire something back. Even if it's, you know, muttered under your breath, you're, there's something that you want to fire back. Um, that takes more than common grace. That takes special grace. That takes... God's Holy Spirit working in our lives to be able to have that type of restraint. And then to go even farther than that, as Peter outlines here, not just having restraint, but give a blessing instead. Now that is supernatural, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, so it's one thing to not say anything in the first place. It's another thing not to retaliate. And now we're just in like crazy land where then you could just respond with a blessing. When someone fires something off at you, Jim. I know you know, we most often receive those things and I think it's why we Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, the insult for insult part for sure. Hopefully there's not evil being done toward each other too much in the church, but uh the insult for insult aspect, uh yeah, insults can be easy to come by in the, even in the church, sadly. Melissa. Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, praying versus speaking to them directly, a lot of times we don't have opportunity to speak to people directly who insult us or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that's a good, good thought for sure. Yeah, this is uh, the word for blessing here is where we get our English word eulogy. It's in the Greek, it reads a lot like eulogy. It's really just the two words good and speak put together to speak well uh, of somebody. And so it's possible, of course, that Peter had in mind, speak well of the person, but it seems like it's more likely that Peter was thinking um, to uh, invoke God's blessing on somebody, whether that's praying for them or act straight up telling them the Lord bless you or sharing the gospel with them or whatever it may be, uh, more than just speaking well of them. It's got to be distinguished, of course, from 
again, that word nice, being nice or flattering somebody. Peter's not saying, okay, if someone insults you, just flatter them. That's not what he's saying. But to give a blessing, meaning to seek that person's spiritual good through your words in return for that insult, whether that's praying for them or giving them Scripture with a pure heart, whatever it may be. And that, of course, it's supernatural. Again, from uh, Job's commentary, I really like the way this was put. For it is exactly when we are insulted and treated with malicious intent that we are most tempted to respond in kind, by gossip, exaggerating the extent of the fault, or with outright slander. Those who are able not simply to clench their teeth and remain silent, but to maintain an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversaries, are truly witnesses to the life-changing power of a new identity in Christ. I thought that was good. That was a good word. And there's a story I read in one of the commentaries about a, a man in the military. So to illustrate this point, give a blessing back instead. A man in the military who became a Christian, and each night there in the barracks before going to bed, he would read his Bible. And he would get insulted and mocked for doing such a thing. I mean, how less manly can you get there, right? You just get, you're dependent on that, you know, little holy book, huh? He read, was reading his Bible, and one night... One of the, the guys threw a pair of muddy boots over at him. And in the morning, that guy woke up to freshly shined pair of boots right next to his bed. And uh, that's, a, I think, a good illustration of, of this idea, not to return insult for insult, but a blessing instead. Any thoughts or stories or questions on any of that? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Go make a story tomorrow. Don't, don't, don't purposely set up your day so someone insults you, though. Don't cause someone to insult you. Uh, don't go seeking insults. But, uh... Yeah, he knew Jesus, yeah, for sure. Well, let me ask you this, as we consider this verse. Uh, so don't, re- don't respond to evil with evil. Don't respond to insult with insult, but give a blessing. Is it always sinful to respond to evil in a way other than blessing? So if you don't respond with a blessing, are you in the wrong? Um, Can you think through some application there of ways that this could perhaps get gnarly? Okay, so elaborate. Sure, yeah, and that's a good point. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with the question. It was worded poorly. But some will take this verse and teach a strict pacifism. So you're never to retaliate. You're just to seek a blessing. But you can obviously think of some situations where it would be right to retaliate, right? There you go. So, yeah, yeah. To give them a blessing. <laughs> yeah, all right, okay. Yeah, good. And you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your family. What kind of provision is it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, or you mace, mace somebody or something, yeah. Because um, people will take some verses like this, or when Jesus taught, you know, if they take your tunic, give them your cloak also, or vice versa. 
get them mixed up, and say, well, yes, you were not supposed to do anything. Someone's doing something to you. You're just supposed to give a blessing and never provide any kind of defense. But uh, I don't think that's the teaching of, of Scripture. Um, that's an abuse of certain verses. Yeah, that's it. Yep. And you can take it as far as, uh, people take it as far as military. Okay. Well, there you are fighting in a you're supposed to be, as a Christian, you're supposed to be returning blessing. Right. Well. Yeah, yeah. Pray for them before you pull the trigger. Okay. okay. That's Diana's application. <laughs> okay. So. Okay. Well, good. I, there are a lot of, there's a lot of conversation we could have that, on that, but we could be getting off topic a little bit. So let's focus on the last two verses. What's Peter quoting there in those uh, verses 11 and 12? 10, 11, and 12. Mm-hmm. Psalm 34, that's the one. Yep, Psalm 34. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 34. And this is what uh, Peter is giving them as a Hebrew Scripture backdrop to what he's instructing them to do. That they are to seek good, pursue good, to seek peace, and to pursue righteousness. That's for all Christians. We're to be committed to righteousness. That's God's calling on our lives, is to pursue righteousness. And He gives some promises here, which are really interesting. What are the promises found in this portion of Psalm 34 that He quotes here? Can you find the, find the promises? Okay, life, love, and good days. And there's one more promise in the last verse. Yeah, so his face is against those who do evil, but toward the righteous, the eyes of the Lord are toward them, and his ears attend to their prayer. So the two promises are in verse 10, life, love, and good days, and then in verse 12, the Lord's eyes and ears being with the believer. When we think about life and love and good days, what's in view there? As Peter's quoting this verse and applying it to their life, what's he saying to them as a promise from the Lord? That they'll live till they're 90? Yeah. Yeah, I know you're displaced and persecuted, but your God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and if you just claim that mansion, it's yours. Yeah. Okay. All right. But there's still a sense of the Lord providing these things, right? I mean, He's providing something. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, and living a life that reflects that. Because if Peter's audience here did return evil for evil or insult for insult, could they expect life, love, and good days as Peter's talking about it here? No, I mean, Peter's tying it together here saying, look, um, pursue these things for, and that's what verse 10 starts with, for the reason of the one who desires these things must keep his tongue from evil. Don't speak insults. 
Don't return lipping off for lipping off. Don't do that. You must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And when we think about love and life and good days, we have to certainly take a biblical approach to those, meaning um, there's depth in view more than breadth, right? Uh, Peter isn't saying, you're going to live until you're super old because that's the goal of this life, is just to live as long as you can. <laughs> that's not what Peter's teaching. You don't... Yes, in, in God's ways, isn't there a deeper love and a more meaningful life and better days when we think about good days? In the Lord, don't we have those things? That's got to be what Peter has in view here. Lizzie. Yep. There are certainly, I mean, just like we looked at last week in verse 7 when he was writing to the husbands, if the husbands re, uh, refuse this inspired instruction, if they refuse to live with their wives in an understanding way, then they can expect their prayers to be hindered, right? I mean, Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. There is a rift that happens in our relationship with the Lord when we're living in unrepentant sin and when we just simply refuse to live the life that God has called us to live. And so here, Peter's continuing that same type of thinking when saying, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, because the one who desires life, love, good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And yeah, I think, he, didn't you use the word presence there, Lizzie, just a second ago? That's the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, the ears attend to their prayer. The favor of the Lord, the presence and favor of the Lord as we are walking with Him through this life. And it's interesting because this is a way that you can look at our inheritance in the Lord that we get now, even before we die. <laughs> uh, there's an inheritance here, and that's the word that's used here in verse 9. You were called for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. There's an inheritance now for the believer. Of course, there's an inheritance afterwards. You know, we're, we're all looking toward that. But even now, we have the favor and the presence of the Lord as we walk with the Lord through this life in our calling that He's given us. And, oh, go ahead. Right, yeah. Seeking first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, right? Um, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and for the believer, you, you can feel that too. Um, when it feels like your prayers can't make it through the ceiling, <laughs> you know, it's just like, boy. Um, so really, it's just coming back to the Lord in repentance and faith, and, and He lifts us up, right? He makes His face to shine upon us when we are seeking to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Um, trying to th figure out why I have this last line on here in my notes. How does this connect with anything else I've been saying? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking when I typed that. Uh, I wrote, not possible if you're overcome with the spirit of fear. Um, why did I talk about fear? 
wonder, because there's fear isn't in our text this evening. Um, perhaps I was just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I probably was thinking about the fact that his recipients are being persecuted too. Um, because wow, we just we can't really relate to that experience of being persecuted, and how fearful it must be. I mean, you think about the believers in Afghanistan this Lord's Day, who have said they're going to meet, and they're just going to meet. The Lord is going to restrain or allow, whatever He restrains or allows. And uh, we can't really relate to that on any meaningful level. Um, And so you see the stuff like this, and this is a passage, put yourself as much as you can in that type of a mental state of here we are living in Kabul or wherever you may be, and we're gathering as believers. 